This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Good evening, everybody. This is Leadership in Action. I'm Mike Usim. We're on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, but I'm also co-hosting tonight with my good friend, my colleague, Jeff Klein. He is executive director of the Ann and John McNulty program. I work with that program as well. Jeff, how are you doing? Pretty good, Mike. Good, good. That's the correct answer. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever might be behind it. But, uh, Jeff, uh, we have the privilege now to bring into our conversation, she is here in the studio with us, Dr. Marlene DeMaio, who is Chief of Orthopedic and Spine Services at the Corporal Michael Krenzens VA Medical Center, near where we are just now. And she also serves as a clinical professor in the Department of Orthopedics at the University of Pennsylvania. Marlene, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Great to have you here. And uh, Marlene, I'm going to begin with uh, a couple decisions you made early in your career, including a decision to become a member of the Navy, to enter into the Navy. So let's uh, talk about that for a few minutes. And then, of course, I want to also understand why you became an orthopedist. So, But let's start with the U.S. Navy service to your country. What brought you into that? Well, When I uh, finished up my fellowship in orthopedic uh, sports medicine, I was looking for jobs, and I was very interested in all the things that orthopedists do at Penn, which is teach, do research, and, of course, take care of patients. And at that time, uh, when I was in the middle of the fellowship, it was Gulf One. Mm -hmm. And my dad's uh, parents had, had emigrated from Italy, and I reflected and thought, there's no way that I'd be a doctor, much Hmm. less an orthopedic surgeon, if my grandparents had not come to America. And I thought that this was high time for me to step up and do something for the country because the country had done so much for me and for my family. And I thought, well, we're in a war. I can serve. I can stay in for maybe, you know, three to five years and reassess uh, where Hmm. where we are, where I am. And uh, I signed up. Uh, volunteered as close to July 4th as I could. Hmm. And, uh, on, July on which 2nd. side? July 2nd. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, I uh, really, really enjoyed it. And I looked at the different services. And at that time, there were more opportunities for what I do with sports medicine in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I just never looked back and, and, and stayed for a 20-year career. Jeff and I and the listeners appreciate your service to the country. Well, Absolutely. thanks. And in opting for the Navy, you had a choice. It could have been the Army. It could it have was. been the Air Force. So help us understand why the Navy. Well, you know, we like to say uh, one team, one fight, except for one day of the year, and that's the Army-Navy day. So, <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, how do you stand on that? Huh? Uh, uh, beat Army. Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, so I, uh, I basically looked at what were the needs of the services. And in a sense, they're like very big companies yeah. when you think about it, very, very big. big medical organizations. And uh, I looked at my skill set and what I was interested in and what really what they needed and what – uh, their long-range goals were, mm-hmm. and for medical sports medicine, 
uh, and orthopedic sports medicine and research, uh, the Army and the Navy looked the, really looked like there were the most opportunities. And at that time, uh, the Navy just had more. And so I, uh, I went with the Navy. I'm not a really great runner. I was a better swimmer, so hmm. it, it worked out. But, uh, that had a little bit to do with cor- it because there's cor- the fitness yeah. test right. hey, a correlation <laughs> twice there. a year. And so nobody in the Navy has to run? <laughs> oh, everybody either <laughs> runs or swims. Okay. Or, yeah, yeah. you've got you to gotta do it twice yeah. a year. We know the Army guys don't. They don't swim, but I yeah. just wanted uh, to no. check if the Navy. <laughs> well, they can. I want to make it clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Many do. Many can do. swim. This is when the phones usually start to light up. And none of us like to sink. Okay. That's right. Uh, Marlene, thank you on that. Uh, you did retire as a captain in the U.S. Navy. We'll come back to that as well. But let's take the clock back a little bit further. A decision to become a physician and then in particular to become an orthopedic surgeon. Walk us through those two decisions. So my my father is uh, actually a pulmonologist, mm-hmm. and so I think he was pretty much uh, not so secretly hoping that I would go into medicine, <laughs> and I did get a lot of exposure to that as a youngster. Uh, but I also grew up in a family with, with my grandmother who was like, if you want to be an astronaut, with an accent, she would say, <laughs> yeah. go, uh, and go she for meant it. it. Yeah, it. yeah. yeah. the stars were, you know, there was no limit. I mean, as, as and, and and looking at her experience and my grandfather's experience, they overcame so much. I, I really believe that. And so uh, when I went to college, uh, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do and started out thinking about Renaissance studies and then biomath and then physics. And then I had a wonderful mentor who said, I, you should really consider medicine. And I did. And at the very last moment, like the end of junior year, I, I decided to, to go into medical, to, to apply for medical school. And if it hadn't been for a good friend of mine who taught me organic chemistry because hmm. uh, I hadn't had it at the time when you had to take the MCAT. Well, yeah. I I would never, you know, pass, the, the, you know, done well in the MCAT. So I say Charlie yeah. Saltzman, a fellow Brown alum, uh, <laughs> Thank you. is responsible yeah. for me to be an orthopedic surgeon. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Let's come back to that as well in a few minutes. But just to round out that other choice, in medicine, you have many choices. Right. Uh, so it could be internal medicine, it could be pediatrics, could be psychiatry, might be surgery, but orthopedics. How did you get there? Well, I um, I was a pretty average to below average athlete, <laughs> yeah. but I had, like many athletes, some injuries. And so I, I got a bit of experience with orthopedics through that. Uh, my dad's best friend was an orthopedist, and he seemed like the happiest physician, surgeon I've Uh ever met. Uh, And then when I was in med school, I really thought I was going to be a cardiac surgeon. And then my last, once again, last rotation, third Hmm. year, Hmm. I work with this orthopedist and I thought I died and went to heaven. The teamwork, (laughs) the focus on um, correcting injury, deformity, you know, you really did help people to walk. And I loved medicine. It was like a big detective story, you know, figuring out the disorder, the disease, the syndrome. But there weren't that many, in my mind, uh, things that you really cured. You know, you cured a lot of infection and some cancer. But mm-hmm. when you got right down to it, you were managing disease. So for me, after you figured it out, like the crossword puzzle, it was like, oh. But with the orthopedic huh. surgery, you know, you had to figure things out and be creative and use your hands and... And you really did fix people, and you've changed their quality of life. Wonderful. And 
you know, I just thought this is the like the best. <laughs> so you that's, found your place. I found my niche. I found yep. my passion. It was awesome. So I'm, I'm curious as you as you went from the academic setting, um, medical school, and and did you do residency and stuff like I that did. afterwards? Yeah. So uh, like everybody else in yeah. med school, you know, you apply to residency. Uh, the dean of my school at the time said. Uh, you know, you could get into probably any cardiac surgery program you wanted or inter- orthopedics. I have no idea. Hmm. He says, you better have a strong plan B because there's so few women who go into orthopedics, mm-hmm. uh, which is still the case. It's better now than it is then. But, you know, so sure. uh, yeah, applied, uh, got in. Uh, I was very lucky. Uh, did my residency at, at Yale and mm-hmm. met a lot of wonderful people and talented pe- mentors. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, I was very lucky. Very very lucky, and and so as you as you then um, volunteer and yeah. go into the Navy, right. um, what was what felt natural about that transition, <laughs> and what was new or surprising? That's a great question. What felt natural was I knew I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, right. and everything else was a big question mark. Uh, I had had friends that were in the military, but not you know anything recently, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I was just very concerned about all that. As a as a, a professional coming in, you, you do officer indoctrination school, which mm-hmm. is six weeks where they teach you maybe like tradition, how to wear the uniform, mm-hmm. and all that. Um, but it was it was a I, the first two weeks I was there, I had no idea what people. It was a foreign language, the, like sure. the vocabulary and things. And then uh, the first case, a patient that I had that needed an injury fixed of ankle fracture. The residents took me in his room, and we met the patient, and I talked to him, and he was as rigid as a rock, <laughs> legs stiff as a board, arms straight out at his side, and I'm talking to this young private Marine. I said, Private, um, I'm just going to step outside with our team for just a moment, and I promise I'll come right back. And I said to the team, I thought you told me there were no medical problems with him. He's like, does he have some medical condition that he's, like, rigid <laughs> like a rock? And they... <laughs> I could see they were, like, dying, <laughs> laughing, like, not to embarrass me. And so the most senior resident of the team said, uh, ma'am, he's a private, and he's standing at attention in bed, and you didn't tell him to at ease, so he's just stiff as a board. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, no wonder I was worried, because I'm in some kind of universe I never right. anticipated. So right. it, it worked out. Right. But- <laughs> uh, well, obviously, and, and we'll get to that part of it for sure. Um, but if you if you learned organic chemistry on the side, I imagine you were able to pick up some of the contextual clues. So absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think that's also what helped, like coming from a small town and having family that was immigrants because you have to kind of connect the mm-hmm. dots. And mm-hmm. also most of my colleagues were scholarship uh, physicians where they had come in either in, in ROTC mm-hmm. or for medical school and they had years of experience mm-hmm. in the military. So I read everything I could find about, you know, history and protocol and talked to people and asked questions and did sort of an immersion, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> kind of learning experience to be a, to try to be my best naval officer and be, because you have two professions. Yeah. You have your profession as a, as a medical doctor, mm-hmm. uh, surgeon, and then your other profession as a naval officer. And what's really fascinating is the patients assume that you're fine as a doctor because, you know, you got the blessing of Uncle Sam. Right. 
But if you don't present yourself as a good officer, hmm. don't wear the uniform properly, show them due respect, act certain ways, mm-hmm. they, they uh, kind of uh, 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 think that you don't know how to be a good doctor. Yeah, it affects credibility. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Huh. Marlene, hang on to that thought for a second. I need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Mike Yusim. I'm here with... Jeff Klein, my good friend and the director of the executive director of the McNulty Leadership Program. And we're talking with retired Navy Captain Dr. Marlene DeMeo, who is now Chief of Orthopedic and Spine Services at the VA Medical Center, not far from where we are just now. Marlene, I've got a question about the second part of your title there. I think we know that orthopedics means you're worried about knees and joints and shoulders and ankles. why is that attached also to the spine in this case, spine services? So in, uh, in, in with uh, orthopedics, uh, we have subspecialties, just like you mentioned, all those anatomic parts. Mm-hmm. And then uh, obviously the skeleton, uh, a large part of that is the spine where all the neural elements are. And so we have uh, subspecialty services in, in spine and the reason why uh, we, we separate that out at, at some facilities is because uh, there's neurosurgery spine and mm-hmm. orthopedic spine. Uh, some uh, medical facilities have both those surgeons in one department that's just called spine surgery. Hmm. So it's basically just to identify that we are very proud to have some spine surgeons that are under orthopedics. And then, yep. you know, there's a neurosurgical spine. And they're close enough related substantively to put them together. Right. Right. Let me ask uh, about your work as a surgeon. And if you could walk Jeff and myself and the listeners into the operating room. It's not just you. It's a team. Right. Let's scrub up a bit and and walk in. What happens when you arrive for a surgical procedure? Sure. Uh, Well, I think, you know, we're in a studio right now. And obviously, in the modern era, there's that big interface of humans and technology. And so when uh, when 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 the patients come in the OR, like that's one of the things we want to we tell them about in the in the beginning that there's you know going to be a lot of equipment and lights and things like that. Uh, but when I when I walk in the operating room, um, I almost always know the the team ahead of time. So there's like a pre huddle, like a huddle before we go in the operating room with the team to go over the case for the day to make sure everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm. We're doing this particular case. It's standard. Not standard, uh, and then go into the uh, OR and check out the the setup of the room, the equipment. Uh, there's usually a surgical technician who's already scrubbed again, just to say, you know, this is what we're doing. Make sure everything's uh, available, and um, then we bring the patient in and talk to the patient a little bit, get them set on the table, make sure they're calm and understanding of things. Then we do what's a safety check. And we mm-hmm. tell them ahead of time. We ask them some certain you know, questions, and then we they get their anesthesia and Off we you do go. our operation. Quick follow up. That sounds so simple. <laughs> <laughs> they get their anesthesia. We do our operation. Well, uh, that's one of the things about us orthopedic surgeons. We try to keep it simple. Yeah. Um, I guess if I were my grandmother were here and I w- were an astronaut, I'd say we get in the capsule and we go to the moon. Yeah, right, and exactly. so the rest is history. Yeah. A few other things along the way. And right. let, me, let me just ask about one of the first stops indeed along the way and then over to Jeff. Um, in both your medical affiliations, the Veterans Hospital here and then the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, 
My guess is you do undergo or you conduct a timeout. Correct. So what exactly is a timeout? What's in that? Why do you do it? So that's really great you asked about that. Um, There's a a governing board for um, surgeons called the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. And when students finish or residents finish, they collect their cases and go there. And one of the things that's standard on all the the patient information, is, is there a timeout? So this is something that is nationally recognized and expected among all orthopedic surgeons and, and most surgeons, American College of Surgery, et cetera. And so what, is it, what it is is before you could potentially go down a wrong path, and we can get to that in a minute, mm-hmm. you go through important, critical, essential information uh, so that you don't go down the wrong path because you, there are certain things that happen. There's a point. There's a no return. Hmm. And so um, the, the, the timeout is usually uh, either one timeout or two timeouts. So there's a timeout before the patient goes to sleep where the patient participates and goes, gives their identity, why they're here, maybe a, a piece of important information like their social security number, birth date. And something about the case so that the patient is stating that this is the case, the the procedure they're expecting to get. And then once the patient goes to sleep and they're draped, so for orthopedics, one of the things that's really an important thing that happens is a wrong-sided surgery. Hmm. The, The body is draped, so let's say we're doing a knee. We do another timeout and, again, say that the patient allergies, the procedure we're doing, the side and medications that we're giving and should have been given Mm -hmm. before we can start. And what that means is you verbally say each of, you make each of those statements so everybody in the OR hears them. Right. And I was very used to this because they they do it in the military all the time. And, you know, Atul Gawande's got his book on the checklist manifesto that is really making the rounds in the medical world. But I would say that this was very well accepted in the in the in the military, and actually it came out of naval flight crash investigations in the early sixties, like you know these checklists and how to follow things, and you know you can it, we do it all the time. But I like people to kind of have that in their mind is to also checklist when things practice ahead of time. What could go wrong in the surgery? Mm-hmm. Like we 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 don't really trained for that, but like fire in the operating room or a serious event, like so that people are ready. But this type of checklist is to prevent something that is like a never event. We, we in orthopedics never want to say that the wrong side, wrong sided surgery had occurred. I'm fascinated by this conversation. Um, Same here. Well, do you want to talk about Lean Six Sigma? Yes. Uh, Yes. Absolutely. Just come into that. This, okay. <laughs> the right. reason being is that this is another thing I learned in the military that sort of fits with medicine. Uh-huh. And please stop me because this is not my field. Uh-huh. So if I get it wrong, please, I don't want to. So Lean Six Sigma, a philosophy and and a method. Yep. Okay. Um, in surgery, just like flight, and for if it's lean, there's certain things like you can't stop the assembly line. So lean six sigma works great for like that sort of assembly line type mm-hmm. linear <clears throat> thinking and event. We have that linear thinking <clears throat> and event in surgery, but the difference is if you have a crisis, you can't hit the stop button. Mm-hmm. If you're in flight and you have both pilots having an illness or injury, and both engines are out, like you know that. 
you can't stop. That's a bad problem. Right. So that's where Lean Six Sigma does not apply. I think there's many areas in medicine where it certainly can apply, Mm -hmm. but in the OR it doesn't. And that's right. really hard for people to understand, even even medical people, even if they don't know about Lean Six Sigma. Right. And that's one of the things that you really have to focus on when you're training anybody in the operating room, from the scrub tech, the nurse, the anesthesiologist, and the resident. And um, and that's part of empower, also empowering people to speak up when they see something that's not quite right. Yeah. And yeah. and get an attention of someone who is maybe of much higher pos- positional authority, like mm-hmm. the surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, they really have to be aware of that. Yeah. And as you started to describe this, the process and the timeouts, you said <laughs> you made a comment um, before you can go down the wrong path. Right. Right. Um, and so h- how do you tr- how do you train or how do you think about even where those points of departure are, right? It, it would almost, as a layperson, as I think about it, I think, well, it seems like there are a lot of wrong paths that Absolutely. could possibly happen. But yeah. but you're also identifying some critical junctures mm-hmm. within a process where you want to make sure that you review. So right. how, if you could just help us understand how those protocols um, get developed. Uh, well- so you're right. There's almost an infinitesimal uh, number of things that could happen, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I'm really fascinated that we don't use game theory more to train residents mm. and medical students these days. Like yeah. it's a complete loss of technology to me that makes me sad. Right. Because we're too hung up on the test with ABCD. Mm-hmm. We need to have more of this kind of discussion. If this, then that. Yeah. So there's several layers. Layer one is with the team. Right. So you, you you know you train everyone for the team and if if they see something that's not quite right example uh huddle mm-hmm. this patient needs a special antibiotic because they're allergic. Mm-hmm. So you go in the room and someone just sort of by mm-hmm. rote is about ready to give the usual antibiotic mm-hmm. and maybe the anesthesia or someone then will identify that and say oh wait a minute this person's allergic we can't give that we need to give this other drug, this other antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Marlene, I'm going to break oh, in for sure. a second because we need to take a break. So what we're going to continue that very thought. Uh, stay with us. We're going to come back. We're uh, talking with uh, Marlene DeMeo about her service now as a orthopedic surgeon. What happens in the operating room? Jeff and I have a lot of questions. We're going to follow up on that, including I'm going to come back and ask you about how you work with young residents who come in with you and maybe make uh, their new an error, how you work with that in the operating room. So hold that thought. After the break, we're going to be talking about that. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm with Jeff Klein. And you are listening, by the way, to Leadership in Action here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. about that, everybody. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Jeff Klein. Our guest this hour live here in the studio is retired Navy Captain Dr. Marlene DeMeo, who is Chief of Orthopedic and Spine Services at the Corporal Michael J. Krenzen's VA Medical Center here in Philadelphia. She also has an appointment as clinical professor in the Department of Orthopedics at our very own university, the University of Pennsylvania. 
Marlene, just to go back on what goes right and sometimes can go wrong in a operating room. Most days you walk in, you do what you need to do, patient recovers, they walk in. Probably on a few moments, though, or a few days, you've uh, had a setback or two in the OR. So pick one of those days, describe it briefly, and then talk us through how you responded, how you kept yourself focused, how you pulled through. Sure. Um, I think uh, your question dovetails nicely with with Jeff's uh, in that this is where uh, the surgeon uh, does have the team, and the team can help the surgeon, but when something happens... It's up to the surgeon to deal with it. There's no one else in the room mm-hmm. uh, unless there's a equal or qualified surgeon as the assistant, and that's usually not the case unless it's a, a, a very big case or a, some kind of uh, special procedure. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is you have to recognize there's a problem, that there's something that's different. Maybe the anatomy mm-hmm. is different. Maybe the severity of the problem was more than what you anticipated ahead of time. Um, And you really have to stop, assess the situation, and change your plan. So where uh, some surgeons get into some difficulty is, one, they don't know they're having a problem, and two, they're not really sure, you know, and and sometimes it's difficult. Like, you need a minute or two to figure out, like, holy cow, I wasn't expecting this today. I better address the extent of this problem and fix it. Um, when uh, there, there was a case where a, a colleague of mine, I was finishing up a case and a colleague of mine was in the other room and uh, fixing a, a knee ligament, an anterior cruciate ligament uh, surgery. And the way we fix that is uh, we uh, drill tunnels in the shin bone and the thigh bone and substitute a different piece of tissue to act as the new anterior cruciate mm-hmm. ligament. And so this really ex- experienced, technically awesome surgeon, like, drilled the tunnel and then went to fix the graft, put the, put in the graft. It was Things were looking good. Put in the fixation to hold the graft in the shin bone. And it just wasn't working at all. Like, something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't coming together. And so he called me over. And I looked at it and I said, you know, I think there's a fracture in the top of the shin bone. And so that's why the graft feels loose. That's why, you know, I said, let's, let's, and if I'm wrong, okay, let's get an x-ray and prove it. So that's what happened. There was a fracture there. And so once we identified that, we all know how to fix shin bone fractures. And so it was a matter of identifying the problem, fixing the fracture. And then we had to do a little special uh, adjustment and, and fixation of the graft to get it to work. It's really interesting. Just a quick follow-up on that. You, he did have backup in this case, and that was you. Right. Is that unusual to have somebody they can call in or you can call in? Um, it's fairly unusual, uh, especially with, we, we, you know, we have uh, one-day surgery centers and things like that. But uh, Penn has a policy where in surgery there's always a second surgeon as a, as a backup. And... Um, they are very conscientious and serious about that. And so, um, and, and, and also, you know, like at Penn Presby and other hospitals, they're, they're so big that, they're, that, that there's a lot of surgeons there. Um, in smaller uh, towns and cities and things like that, um, you have to be very careful about the cases you're doing and who's around. 
and that was the same thing like when we were like in the navy and i was at like more smaller hospitals and Mm -hmm. things like that like sometimes i'd be doing a case and i just ask the general surgeon to stick around uh, I didn't, mm-hmm, you know, just mm-hmm. in case. Uh, and then you have to have like backup. Like there's certain cases we do where we're near vessels and we don't we don't want to go near them. We like an anatomy. You got to find the vessel and you want to expose it and go right in it. Look at it. In orthopedics, it's like stay away from the vessel. Go to the bone. And, um, you know, that's the plan. But if you're the potential of complication, even though it's small, you might want to have just that vascular surgeon, you know, there in the hospital or in the, you know, around in case something happens, they can just jump right in and help you out. So uh, I'll switch gears a a little bit here if I can, um, because there's just so many things that we can talk about here. Um, Part of reading your bio, um, you've been widely recognized. um, (laughs) For, for your work. And so I, I wanted to, to ask you about that. The first is um, uh, you were the, the first military winner of the American Orthopedic Society uh, for Sports Medicine's Excellence in Research Award, right? Yeah, that was uh, – I was so ex- happy about that for the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, we – uh, got that award based on um, looking at the biomechanics, the kinematics of the knee mm-hmm. and uh, knee injuries. And we did that work at Naval Postgraduate School uh, and uh, in Monterey, mm-hmm. when I, that, my first duty station. And that was a really amazing event. And again, teamwork. You know, it was a combination of sure. uh, biomechanists, material science people, uh, orthopedic surgeons. And uh, we had to build the lab first, so that was another thing. Like I, ha- we had we had this idea, uh, Dave Atkinson and myself. Like uh-huh. we need to study this. We need to know more about this problem. And uh, it was almost like an Andy Rooney you know, kind of thing. Hey, let's put on a show. You know, we had to build a lab, and they had never done any kind of tissue work, right. you know, human tissue work at Naval Postgraduate School Monterey. Uh, but uh, we we did it right. Well, and and there are layers of complexity to the statement. We had to build a lab, right? Um, <laughs> right. How does how does so you start with an idea? You mm-hmm. realize to really be able to investigate the idea, you need the right resources, including this mm-hmm. facility. So, right. I mean, what does that take? I, I can't imagine you just picked up the phone and said, um, "Hey, boss, we need a lab." Almost. Really? Yeah. So uh, we went to our and can department. I work, can I work for that boss? <laughs> Just joking, Mike. <laughs> so uh, this yes. was my first. This is my first job. Uh-huh. Uh, so we go to our chairman, who mm-hmm. is a captain, Captain Herb Alexander, and we say, "Here's the gap in the base." In summary, yeah. this is the gap in the literature. This is why we think it's important. Um, the mo- the closest resources in in the Department of Defense is Naval Postgraduate School Monterey, and we would like to go and talk to them and see if they might be interested. He, he says he says okay, so he gave us permission on mm-hmm. like company time, so temporary duty, mm-hmm. uh, to go and speak with Young Quan, a materials engineer, brilliant individual. And we basically did the same thing, and we told him what we wanted to do, and he said, okay. And so we got uh, some grants from the Navy. We got Mm -hmm. some grants from Naval Postgraduate School Monterey. Uh, He asked of us to be thesis advisors. Um, We said, absolutely, love, sure. And we built a lab, and 
we would go and do the studies and on the on the knees and reported on them and we we submitted the paper and right. we won the award so yeah, yeah it was really uh, a, a wonderful experience uh, but within that was uh, you know as you could imagine some setbacks and failures and sure. trying to explain to people like you know how to deal with a special type of hazmat Mm-hmm. And, you know, the only medical people who were there were the dentists when we left. So we had to get buy-in. I mean, it was a real uh, uh, interesting uh, – I hadn't really thought about it because I just was like, well, here's what we need to do. Here's the steps. Here's – you know, we sure. – you know, one thing didn't work, one pathway, so we try another pathway. and well, it, 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 it actually it was, harkens back to what you said before, which is, well, okay, we we encounter a problem, we stop, assess, we change the plan a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, good point. Right? Excellent point. Yeah. Huh. And got to meet a lot of wonderful people. Huh. Uh, Marlene, just to shift gears a little bit yet again, we've got so much to cover still in the short time remaining. Uh, you referenced the uh, great book by uh, a surgeon in Boston, The Checklist Manifesto, Atul Gawande, he also has written an article that got a lot of attention, in this case in The New Yorker, as he brought a mentor with him into the surgical theater, all about mentoring there. So I bet you've had that experience, and maybe you've given that experience. So mentoring in surgery, do you do it? How does it work? What happens? So I want to know what water you're drinking with the ESP. I want to know. Like, <laughs> that is so awesome. Um I uh, actually had what they, they call an instructional course, like to teach surgeons special techniques and things uh, about coaching. Just that um, at this organization called the American, uh, the AOA. Anyway, uh, and I have a we had just published a book chapter about this because this is another thing that I think we really, really need in medicine and it kind of harkens back to John Wharton because he was like oh there's the apprenticeship with business but we need a school (laughs) so here we are in 2018 and we have surgery as an apprenticeship in many ways it's very elegant but we still have that so the question is how do we make the best surgeon and coaching is part of that at every level and so you get that in the best residencies just like Teams with coaching and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, sports and performance art, singing, orchestration, music, whatever. What's harder is like with Dr. Gawande, when you're the pro from Dover, you know, he's the the surgeon, you know, in Boston at MGA, you know, at Harvard. And how do you get that when you're that person? How do you improve your skills more? How do you... Uh, acquire new skills. And so this is where I, I really agree with him that we need more coaching models. And I think we can do it in like at Penn, it's wonderful because there's so many faculty who are so mm-hmm. gifted. Um, it's harder for people in private practice and in community hospitals where you have to bring someone in and you get the problem that Dr. Gawande had, which is the patients are like, why is this person here? I thought you knew how to do this operation. So there's a trust mm. problem, yeah. not only with the mm-hmm. patients, but with the staff. Like we thought you did this operation. All right. Or why, why mm. is this person yeah. here? And for example, there's situations where 
you uh, maybe haven't done a procedure in a while and your practice profile and your practice has mm. changed. You're obviously competent. You're obviously qualified. Sure. But you want to start doing it again and you want to have someone there to make sure everything goes smoothly, that your, your patient does well. And that's another place where coaching is, I feel, essential. Um, but it's a little hard to factor it in in, in the modern medical world because of the, th- the things I was yeah. just mentioning and, and patient trust. Mm-hmm. Marlene, hold that thought for just a minute. I want to remind our listeners that I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm with Jeff Klein. This is Leadership in Action, and we're speaking with Dr. Marlene DeMaio, Chief of Orthopedic and Spine Services at the Veterans Medical Center here in Philadelphia. And before we leave that, uh, Marlene, I do recall that in Atul Gawande's article about uh, his mentoring and his receiving mentoring made a really interesting point. He brought an experienced surgeon into the theater with him, and the surgeon stood and just witnessed and then witnessed the procedure, and then afterwards said, "Uh, Atul, look great. One problem, though, was that your elbow was sticking up a little bit too high and fine for you, but the other people on your team could not see what you were doing. And what struck me about that, I really made a mental note, is that coaching is the big stuff, but often, maybe most profoundly, in terms of lasting changes that uh, come with it, it can be very specific things of, of that level. What, what do you think? Absolutely the case. Um, it, it's, it, it, and that's why it's so important to have coaches, and that's why there's so much discussion and literature devoted to what is a great coach, whether... You know, your favorite coach is is John Wooden or whomever. But the bottom line is, is those people may not have been the best player. And oftentimes they're not. And that's the other issue with this whole thing. Like a person who may be the best surgical coach may not have been like the highly gifted surgeon that could just do anything quickly and better than anybody else. They have that ability uh, which I do think is somewhat native. It's a lot like the leadership ideas, like who's born and who's who's nurture nature. I, I do think that they are able to look at the big picture, the 30,000-foot view, and then they can get right down into the nitty-gritty, you know, nanometers of it. You know, they see the forest and they see the tree and they can communicate it. And and that was also something that I, I think I really learned and appreciated more in the military. Quick follow-up and then over to Jeff on that. Uh, as you've already described the operating room, when you're there as a surgeon, you are in charge. Usually there's no backup. You are the authority. Right. And yet coaching, if you're on the receiving sign, requires that you're open to suggestions. How do you break through with a surgeon who is not ready to be instructed, so to speak, on how to improve their procedures? How do, how do you work with a, a reluctant coachee? Well, I think it's similar to a lot of situations in life that um, first you have to really connect with mm-hmm. the person, and there has to be some sort of trust, or and hopefully there's trust and respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, respect for what you know you're bringing and and respect for you as a person and your craft and then you i think have to help them see that you're trying to make them their best surgeon make them better Mm -hmm. and do that with dignity and be very positive and because a lot of times these things come about from a 
failure or a disruptive physician or whatever it may be. So you have to really point out that you may personally, friend, colleague, be seeing this as a failure situation. And in some ways, it's true it is. But Mm -hmm. we are going to overcome that. And this is what we're we're going to work on this together. This is a plan we're going to make together. And we're going to but they have to have some insight. And that's sometimes where it gets Mm -hmm. difficult because a fair number of people don't have this insight. And so you have to try another channel, Mm -hmm. meaning, and sometimes it's nuts and bolts. Like the hospital medical staff office said that if if you don't follow through on this program, you're not going to have privileges anymore. Or the other thing Mm -hmm. is that I know you want to be the best. I know you want to be better. Mm -hmm. This is how we think we can get there. And we're going to reassess at every step. And if, if, if it's not right for you and it's not right for me, then we're going to do something different. One of um, one of the guests we've had on on the show a couple of times over the years is a, a scholar Sheila Heen, and she she does a lot of work around feedback, um, and especially how to receive feedback. Right, I think we all have some theories about how we give feedback, but she thinks about what are the what are the right mm-hmm. ways to receive it, and one of the ways that she's kind of categorizes feedback. Well, I'll apologize in advance for a long preamble, but I promise I'm getting to a question. Um, She talks about appreciative feedback. She talks about developmental feedback. And then she talks about evaluative feedback, right? And and I was struck as you were talking about the process of building trust. Um, Oftentimes, trust is built through appreciative feedback, right? Through highlighting some of the things that someone does that – that are clearly a character strength or clearly a skill, clearly set them apart, um, and that that can then lead to developmental feedback, right? The kind that is uh, more about how you can grow into the best surgeon that you can be. Um, I say that as a beginning because one of the one of the things that we've had the privilege to do here at Wharton is work with Penn's medical school over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. And um, under uh, Gail Morrison, who was the vice dean at the time um, and for many years just retired, she really wanted to focus more on on the teamwork behaviors that were going to be necessary for physicians, both um, physician to physician and as well as physician as a leader of a medical team. And the challenge that we ran into, and I think, you know, Gail made a lot of progress in this area, but the challenge that we ran into is that the medical school students were most used to hearing evaluative feedback. And so when we wanted to open, when we wanted to ask them, A, both to open up to receiving other kinds of feedback or to provide feedback to a peer, they felt like that was really out of place for them. Um, and, And so I wonder... A, if you see the same kinds of dynamics um, for, uh, you know, for more sophisticated surgeons, for more advanced teams, and then um, what steps we can all take to uh, to open ourselves up to the kind of feedback that you're talking about, which can make us better as at whatever profession, in this case, orthopedic surgery. Well, I'm fascinated by her work and motivated to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think uh, this prob- this issue uh, affects a lot of high performers, yeah. which I, I'd like to think us, we surgeons are. Um, we definitely like to think surgeons are. Yeah, yeah. I can understand that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Having had surgery myself, I'm yeah. with you. Uh, I, I think that we we would all benefit from you know, getting 
get learning about the learning about feedback and and a lot of surgeons be, it, it's a balance it's a balance between confidence mm-hmm. confidence and the ability to receive feedback and we surgeons also are pretty good about compartmentalizing mm. so like in the operating like it's timing is critical so again right after a case or in the middle of a case, you know, you don't do feedback then. Sure. So you have to have the right timing and then you have to kind of dial down the volume of the confidence mm-hmm. and dial up the, I need to listen mm-hmm. on every level to be better and have, and, have, and receive that. And then you got to process it. And sometimes uh, we need help processing. Got it. So I think, think from what i've observed people surgeons will hear that case could have gone better and they can probably even list the ways that it could have gone better mm-hmm. and then and looking at maybe the x-ray as your report card or whatever mm-hmm. oh that's an a minus i wanted an a plus hmm. i know the patient's going to do great you know mm-hmm. patient's going to do but i wanted an a but the next step to like get that feedback or take that case to uh, expert traumatologists of which we have obviously at Penn, you know, and go over that, it, you know, doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. They don't take the next step. I'm not really sure why that is, but I think we really need to uh, help young people with that. And that kind of, it's a different type of hard listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marlene, we've got about a minute and a half here to go. We often ask our guests near the end, and I'm going to do that right now, for any advice you might have to listeners who are, let's say, in their early 20s and are thinking either of going into uniform or maybe going into medicine. With the benefit of hindsight, looking back on yourself at about that age, what line of advice would you have? Well, you can do both at the same time. Uh, so it's a, it's a lovely situation. It doesn't have to be binary. Uh I, I would I think exposure is critical. Uh, you know, try to f- find someone uh, you know who, who's either friends or family uh, in medicine in the military. Talk to them, get some exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, often, uh, co- the colleges have um, opportunities to you know spend time uh, with with the military, uh, and the same with medicine. A lot of a lot of hospitals and certainly academic programs have intern internships for and volunteers for people over the summer to have uh, a mentor and hmm. just follow uh, people around. Like when I was at Naval Medical Center, Portsmouth High School students, uh, usually the women, you know, would come and it was wonderful. So that I think is best, so you can get a good idea what it's about, and then follow your passion. Yep. Yep. And on uh, maybe just a, a last uh, sort of a, a coda on that question, suppose that takes you for 10 or 15 years. With the benefit of hindsight looking very briefly back on your own career, uh, how do you know when, it's, when you're ready for a change or a redirection? So what advice would you have to somebody now who's 35 or maybe 40 who's looking maybe to redirect so I think this is where the discussion comes in. I know it sounds a little trite, but that work-life balance mm-hmm. and, and look at what you've accomplished, mm. what, what you feel that you have to offer, and what you, how you want to live your life. And if that means going back to school, like in the military, a lot of people go back and get another degree, and become, there's a high number of ex-military that are teachers, um, or doing something completely different. <laughs> 
go for it. But mm. I think it's once again, you have to have some personal reflection, uh, talk to your friends, talk to people who know you well, l- look at these new fields and, and take some time. And it, it could take a couple years to figure it out. But then I would just say, go for it. Great. Marlene, I appreciate your commentary there. Uh, Jeff and I appreciate your service to the country. We appreciate your service as a surgeon. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. It's been a real honor. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.